This is the What Now Podcast. People just clam up and don't listen. The most effective way is to listen to the other person, just to listen and to make certain you fully understand what they're saying. And apparently, and this isn't surprising, I think we've all experienced this, when you're sitting down with someone and you know they're really listening to you, that creates a different sort of dynamic that sometimes, many times, opens up the possibility of people changing their mind. But what has to come first is you have to listen. This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss topics surrounding cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing for our church community. This is Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Judge Thomas B. Griffith, former federal judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Tom shares how we can support the Constitution by supporting unity, both inside and outside of the church, and how our baptism is a critical ordinance where we commit to unity and love as the Savior did. Tom talks about how to achieve compromise and diffuse contention and foster unity around race, gender, nationality, sexual orientation, and other potentially divisive topics. Today, I'm here with Thomas B. Griffith. Tom is a former federal judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Before his appointment to the bench, he was Senate Legal Counsel, the Chief Legal Officer of the United States Senate. I am honored to have you join us today to discuss how we can avoid contention and division in our church culture despite varying opinions about controversial topics. So welcome. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. This is going to be fantastic. We have seen increased political contention and division in our country these last few years, which has really polarized our country. I mean, likewise, we've seen increased division in our church community over issues surrounding LGBTQ, women in the priesthood, heavenly mother, I mean, just to name a few. So how can we navigate differing opinions and remain civil? It's really leaking into the church now. Yeah, that's a big issue. It's a, it's an important issue. We'll get to the how to handle this, but can we start with why it's so important that we figure out how to do this? Yes. It impressed me. I, I heard this from someone else, a Bible scholar who pointed out that in John chapter 17, a passage of scripture that's familiar to all of us, it's Jesus praying to Heavenly Father after the Last Supper. And he prays that his disciples will be unified and one. And we often use that scripture to point out that Jesus says that my disciples may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us. And we use that to talk about restoration insights into the nature of the Godhead, that the Father and the Son are separate and distinct individuals. And to be sure, that's an important scripture that supports that insight. But I think sometimes when we focus on that part of that scripture, this the major point, the point of the prayer that Jesus was offering was that his disciples would be unified. And then he says, so that the world may know that thou hast sent me. So in other words, Jesus is saying the most powerful witness his believers can offer of his divinity, the most powerful witness is that they are unified. So when we fall short of that, when for whatever reason, our politics or our views of doctrine or whatever, whenever we allow that to 
undermine our unity, it's a serious thing because we are undermining our witness of the divinity of Christ. And that's sort of what we're here to do is to bear witness of him. So let me start with that. I think it's critically important that we figure out the how to, or that we try to figure out the how to. That's powerful. That is powerful. Unity just starts falling apart when there's contention. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what troubles me at the beginning, you listed a number of issues that had been contentious sort of doctrinal issues, and we can talk about that as well. But what worries me most right now is the way that partisan political issues have worked their way into the stakes and wards of the church. I think it's rather extraordinary that President Oaks has had to take several general conference addresses to talk about this, right? And in, in his the Easter Sunday one he gave back in April 2020, was it was surprising to me that on Easter Sunday, he wouldn't talk about Easter, but instead he talked about the Constitution and its importance. I assume that means he thought the message he was giving was critically important, that it would displace an expected sort of Easter message with something about politics, is, I think is, is unusual. For me, the heart of his message was when he said that on contested issues, we Latter-day Saints should seek to moderate and to unify. Now, we normally don't think of people in the political sphere these days as working to unify. We see them as dividing. Recently, come across the phrase conflict entrepreneurs, you know, people who stir up controversy. That seems to be a growth industry these days. And I worry most about how partisan arguments over partisan political agendas have worked their way into the church. I, I recently heard Elder Lance Wickman, the church's general counsel and emeritus member of the 70, sum it up in a way that I thought really captured it. He said, too many of our people have traded their religion for their politics. And that's, that's, a, that's interesting. I think that's very troubling. And that is happening. <laughs> yeah. That is happening. Wasn't it one of the early church leaders, maybe Joseph Smith even, that said at some point the Constitution will be hanging by a thread? Yeah, there's a big debate about whether Joseph Smith ever said that, but there's no question that his successors quoted that. <laughs> so whether Joseph Smith said it or not, many of his successors did. And at the very least, I think Latter-day Saints, I think we have a sense that we have a special stewardship with regard to the Constitution. We have a special relationship to it. I think that's one of the reasons why President Oaks takes an Easter Sunday and talks about the divinely inspired constitution. And something I think is interesting about when normally when we think about supporting and defending the constitution, we think about having our pocket copies of the constitution that we carry around. I do that as sort of what you do in Washington, D.C. You have your pocket copy of the constitution and you pull it out and talk about it. And so that's fine. That's good. We often think about our favorite provisions of the Constitution. The First Amendment protects religious liberty. And for people of faith, that's a really important provision. For many people, supporting and defending the Constitution means having a deep understanding of the Second Amendment and, and what it protects. And I, as a federal judge, I wrote some opinions about the Second Amendment, believing it does guarantee a right to someone to own a firearm for self-defense. The equal protection clauses of the Constitution are critically important because they are there to help us tear down racial barriers and gender barriers. Those are all really important. But to me, the most important principle underlying the creation and the maintenance of the Constitution of the United States, it is designed 
it forces us to seek consensus. And when we can't reach consensus, to seek compromise. And just from reading the Constitution and seeing the structures of government it creates, that's obvious. You have to compromise to be able to succeed in this form, in this form of government. But even more interesting to me than that is the history of the creation of the Constitution in the Philadelphia Convention in 1787. There's some really interesting work that's been, been done on this. And it turns out that the delegates to that Constitutional Convention in 1787 were able to do what they did because they compromised. And they compromised for the sake of unity before they even knew the terms of the compromise. That's a big deal. George Washington wrote the, the letter that transmitted the Constitution after its completion to the Continental Congress. And he explained to the Congress how this Constitution was created. Because as we know, in July of 1787, the convention wasn't working very well. Delegates, some of them were threatening to leave and to dissolve the convention because they just couldn't come to an agreement. The, the differences were just too large. And yet, less than two months later, they had done it. They pulled it off. And Washington wrote a letter to Congress explaining what happened. And, and these are the words that he used. I think I'll get it pretty close to the direct quote, but I may be a word or two off, but it was something like this. He said, this constitution is the result of the spirit of amity and that mutual deference, which the peculiarity of our political circumstances rendered indispensable. I'll give you my translation of that. Washington saying, the politics of our situation were awful. We were stuck. There was no way out. But we found a way out because of the spirit of amity. That means love. That means friendship. And mutual deference. That means deferring to someone who has views different than you. That means I'm willing to give up things that are important to me so that you will be able to have things that are important to you so that we can live together in a society where we respect one another. Now, that's risky, right? That is really risky that I'm willing to give up something that's important to me to accommodate you. Well, that's what compromises. Here's the hope. The hope is, okay, I'm going to take that first step. I'm going to be kind of vulnerable here. I'm going to give up some things that I think are important under religious liberty even. And this is a President Oaks theme lately. We need to give up some of the things that we've been holding on to in religious liberty for the benefit of others so that they'll feel safe and accommodated. And it's a gamble, right? But the gamble is, if I do that, if I take that first step at compromise and peacemaking, that my opponent will be moved by that and will do the same and will protect me. Now, that sounds crazy in, in many ways, right? But I think back then there was pure intent. It's different now. Right, they're I don't think it was different. And that's the point I want to make is that it sounds crazy to us. We don't think that way. We think politics is hardball, and I got to figure out a way to stab the other guy in the back. And I'm not naive. Most of my professional career has been spent in Washington D.C. I've seen the underbelly of it. I've seen the sausage making, and sometimes it's really ugly. But I've also seen this happen: this spirit of amity and mutual deference, and it's what created the Constitution. And so my pitch to folks is, if you want to support and defend the Constitution, understand the Second Amendment, understand the First Amendment, understand the equal protection of the ag Those are all important. They're all vital. But if you really want to get to the heart of what it means to support and defend the Constitution, you need to understand 
that the Constitution requires compromise. The columnist Michael Gerson says, the Constitution can withstand vigorous disagreement. It cannot withstand a citizenry that holds each other in contempt. So if you want to support and defend the Constitution, I believe the best way you can do that is to become an agent of reconciliation and not an agent of division. If you're an agent of division on social media, in your ward, in your community. Oh, yeah. I mean, our prophet knows the damage that conflict can create and has been pleading with us. Like in our recent conference, remove it from your lives. Right. Doesn't mean you don't disagree. I mean, no. That's right. Compromise. Mm -hmm. You can disagree, but it's the way you go about disagreeing that makes all the difference. And when we see our national leaders belittling people and holding them in contempt, We laugh. It's clever. Isn't that cute? That's kind of funny. No, it's actually not. It's actually doing serious damage to the Constitution. Interesting. That's interesting. I mean, it makes me think of your quote. You sent a bunch of really incredible talks that you've given at BYU and other locations. And I love this one from your BYU studies article that states the most fundamental, I'll quote you here, the most fundamental work of Christ is to bring people together. So how can members share their viewpoints and still remain respectful? That seems really difficult for people. It is. It is. Let's get to the how-to. And I don't have I don't have the answers. I'm working on this myself. I think we're all struggling to figure it out, but we've got to figure it out. And so conversations like this will help us along the path. But here's some things that I try and keep in mind. I don't do it perfect, but I try and keep in mind. First of all, I have strongly held political views. I'm a political junkie. I grew up in Washington, D.C. I interned on Capitol Hill. I listened to C-SPAN radio, right? I mean, who does that? You're hardcore. junkies do. So (laughs) yeah, I'm hardcore. So I have strongly held political views. But you know, I have never thought that my political views and my political allegiance comes anywhere close to my commitment to the restored gospel. It's not close at all. And I And I've never thought that my strongly held views about marginal tax rates or pick whatever policy you pick or free trade or defense, I've never thought that those were the Lord's views, right? I mean, they're my views and I may be wrong. Indeed, I have found over the course of my life that a number of my strongly held political views turned out to be wrong. And so I think the first thing is let's all have a sense of humility about our political allegiance. And let's have a sense of generosity about people who disagree with us. I used to be a Democrat when I was younger. The joke I make, and this is not offend any of my Democratic friends, but the joke I made is I was a Democrat until I started to read. Then I became a conservative. That's a joke. That's what my father-in-law, Orrin Hatch, always said. I was a Democrat till I learned to read and write, and then I became a Republican. So the reason I offer no that is- No offense to anyone out there who's a Democrat right now, but it's just- Because we can make equal arguments uh, going the other. I raised that simply to make the point that, no, I used to be a Democrat. And so I cannot think of Democrats as my enemies. No, I'm a political conservative, right? I have a different view about the best way to organize society. But I don't think just because someone has a different view about that, that they're my enemy- They're my opponent, but it's an opponent in this great dialogue, this great conversation that we have in America about how to make the country better. Mitch Daniels is a chancellor of Purdue University right now. 
he used to be a Republican governor of Indiana, was the head of the Office of Management and Budget during the George W. Bush administration, and was highly touted as a possible Republican nominee for the presidency. He decided not to run. But Mitch Daniels, he's a conservative through and through. You can't question his conservative bona fides. He says this about what we ought to be doing in politics in our society. He says, our first thought is always for those on the first rung of life's ladder and how we might help them climb. Now, I agree with Mitch Daniels. That is one of the highest and best uses of politics and of government is to figure out how to create a society in which those on the first rung of life's ladder can climb. Now, progressives have a different view about how to do that, and it involves more actions and interventions by government than do conservatives. But I hope we all agree that that is the first thing that we consider, is how to help those on life's first rung, that we will have passionate disagreements about how to do that. And those disagreements are good. It's good to argue about these things. But I hope that we all agree that that's the goal, is to create that type of society. Well, there's kind of this parallel. So I'm going to share another quote of yours that I really liked when you said, when politicians and judges like me take an oath to uphold the Constitution, we commit to work for unity. We make a solemn pledge that we will not be agents of division. This vow to work for national unity is more than gauzy sentimentality or merely a call for civility in our public discourse. And I think as baptized members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we also commit to work for unity, right? I agree. And in the ward, think about all the symbolism in our church life that points in this direction. Think about the way we administer the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We pass it one to another, right? Now, maybe we're just doing that because it's the most efficient way, perhaps. I don't think so. I think there's a whole lot more going on there. We pass the emblems of our Lord's suffering one to another, I think, as a great symbol of our unity, that we are linked together through our covenants to one another and to Christ. Now, other Christian traditions administer communion or Eucharist in, in a different fashion. And it, for example, if you're a Roman Catholic, you receive the emblems directly from the priest. And that has great symbolism in that tradition. It's an important symbolism, but that's not how we do it. We do it one to another. And I think one of the reasons we do that is because it's to remind us that we're linked to one another. I mean, seriously, how can I, in good conscience, offer to a person who's sitting next to me on the row, the emblems of Christ's suffering and death, if I hate that person, or if I belittle that person, or if I hold that person in contempt because, fill in the blank, because they're a Democrat, because they're a Republican, because they like country music, I mean, fill in the blank, or because they have a different view about the role of women in the church. These issues, I think the Lord's trying to teach us that every Sunday, Every Sunday, we engage in this central act of our faith, which is intended to remind us of a lot of things. But one of the things it's intended to remind us of is that we need to be unified. We need to love one another. Think about the temple. The temple, where you go through the temple, we do it as a company, right? We do it as a group of people. And we are told directly that we shouldn't harbor ill feelings one to another. We dress in white symbolically to show 
that we're equal. Anyway, so our theology and our practice reinforces this, but unfortunately, it's not working as well as it should today. This isn't a problem that's unique to us, and it looks like, for example, in the North American evangelical church, it's even a more severe problem. And this has been the subject of lots of commentary in the last few years about the way uh, politics have worked their way into many evangelical congregations. In, in reading what some of their thought leaders have said about this, a couple of them have pointed out something that I think is really interesting. And I think this applies to me and to us as well. They will point out that the typical member of a congregation will go to church for an hour or two on Sunday, and then sometime during the week, we'll probably have a Bible study with some friends and, and family in a small group setting for another hour or two. So that's four hours of spiritual formation that way. But that same person may spend three hours a day listening to talk radio and watching Fox News every night and add that up <laughs> and see yeah. what, uh -huh. what are you listening to? And listen, I'm not pointing that out to cast aspersions on others. I'm saying that to look inwardly at me, where am I spending my time? And I'm pretty certain that I spend more time in the political ecosphere than I do in the church. Well, you make a really good point there because it is so unbalanced, right? I mean, the spiritual intake is so minimal compared to the worldly intake, right? And if you have a total imbalance like that, it will affect how we think, how we act, how we interact. It makes me think of another quote of yours that I have here that I really liked. It says, this is from your BYU Law School fireside. It says, when we are doing it right, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ works to bring at one those who are divided by race, gender, nationality, sexual orientation, and other fault lines that too often keep us from fully embracing each other as brothers and sisters. Yeah. So, I mean, some people dig so deep into these certain issues and not always in a positive platform. You know, right. I mean, that's why I'm doing this podcast. The whole point of me paying for this podcast, personally, I make no money doing this, is a public service to our church community to build unity. So we can talk about these things without having division, right? right? So we can talk about these things. We can agree to disagree. We can find compromise. And we can allow people to have a platform where we can discuss issues like this. And still, they can still stay in the church. Yeah, that's great. You know, I love that. And I'm glad you're doing this. On the how-to, let me tell you something that I saw in Sunday school class in my ward last year that reminds me of what you just said. It was a Sunday school lesson on President Oaks's talk about the Constitution. And I don't know if in your world of friends and acquaintances, if there was much discussion about, about that talk, but there was in my world. And I noticed something for many people that they assumed that President Oaks was talking about someone else. <laughs> you know, they would, they would read the talk and they'd say, yeah, he's telling the progressives here that they need to change. Or progressives would say, yeah, I wish all these conservatives would listen to President Oaks. And that's common. We do that. We all, that's a human thing to do that. But in this Sunday school lesson, the teacher began the discussion of President Oaks' talk by saying, okay, here's what I'd like us to discuss today. What was it in President Oaks' talk that's going to cause you to change the way you do things? And boy, the discussion that followed was one of the finest discussions I've ever heard in a Sunday school class because people did that. The first fellow spoke, he said, you know, he said, I blog a lot about politics 
And I realized after hearing President Oaks talking about we need to moderate and to seek unity, I realized that a lot of the things that I've said have been divisive. And I'm going to stop doing that. He said, and in fact, I'm going to write to some of the people who I criticized and apologize to them. That was the first comment that was made from the class and the others followed. So we have got these great resources in the church that we can do it right if we've got the humility. And if unity is something we really care about, that we're willing to put to one side our partisan allegiances because they're not as important as they are. They're nowhere near as important as our commitment to help build the church in all the world. And again, go back to John 17. Christ has taught us the primary way we do that is unity. I totally agree. I mean, we all have a personal obligation, despite our situation, to contribute to peace. I love this quote by President Nelson in his recent talking conference that the power of spiritual momentum, that talk was incredible. He said, quote, how can we expect peace to exist in the world when we are not individually seeking peace and harmony? Brothers and sisters, I know what I'm suggesting is not easy, but followers of Jesus Christ should set the example for all the world to follow. I plead with you to do all you can to end personal conflicts that are currently raging in your hearts and in your lives. Let's discuss that. Yeah, that's power. His word choice, raging, plead. like, <laughs> And this is the prophet of God telling us this. Clearly, it's an issue. And he's saying to be an example to all the world. I'm hopeful enough to think that this is something that we can give to the world that's unique. Look, there are a lot of things we don't do well as Latter-day Saints, and we're trying to get better. We're trying to get better. But there's something we do, we do really well, and that's we know how to build community, right? I mean, our wards are remarkable engines of social change. Now, here's what I mean by that. I'm now borrowing former BYU professor Eugene England, who wrote an essay that I call it section 139 in my Doctrine and Covenants. To me, it's like scripture. The essay is called Why the Church is as True as the Gospel. And Brother England talks about how the frustrations we feel being in a ward, dealing with other fallible human beings and how they disappoint us and how we disappoint them, that that's part of the plan. By living in a ward and dealing with those challenges, that's every bit as transformative as understanding true doctrine. And Brother England points out two things about Latter-day Saint wards that are really unique. The first one is you don't get to choose where you're going to go, right? You live here, you're going to be in that ward, and that may be the really lousy ward that meets in the building, right? Mm -hmm. But that's, that's yeah. where you're going to go. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is you're going to have a calling in that ward, right? Everyone's got a piece of the action. It's got sweat equity. And so what it means is putting those two together, you're going to be going to church on Sunday and sitting next to people in sacrament meeting who you may never have wanted to take out to lunch, right? Because you just don't, you don't have anything in common with them. You don't like them. But now you have to go to church with them. And then on top of that, you're going to have to work with them in the primary or the young women's. You're going to have to work with them. And of course, we know what happens after a couple of months of that we find out that that person whose views we disagree with so deeply on any number of issues, we find out by working with them in the primary or mutual young women's, we find out that the Lord loves them every bit as much as he loves us, right? And that's the beginning of wisdom, right? 
and that is a miracle that's going on every week in every ward if we have eyes to see it, right? So we know how to overcome differences. We know how to build community. We don't have a lot of iconography in the church. The earliest converts to the church tended to be from Puritan backgrounds. And so we sort of inherited that culture of that. We don't have a whole lot of iconography, but there is one symbol that we have and we use, right? The beehive, right? Yeah. Industrious. We are the people of the beehive. We're industrious and we know how to work together. We know how to create community. So I think there's actually a great opportunity here, and it is building on what President Nelson's talking about, of being an example to the world. We ought to be the ones who are known as the bridge builders, as the people of reconciliation. I mean, right now, for those who have favorable views of Latter-day Saints, public opinion polling tends to say we're identified as nice people, as family-oriented, and as good sober folks, you know? And I'll take all those. Those are wonderful compliments. I'll take all of them. I'm grateful that many people think of us that way. But wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be greater if people would say, oh, you're a Latter-day Saint? Oh, you're the people that work real hard at unifying people. That's your church, right? That's what you do. I think that's our calling. I think our great challenge is to take the lessons we've learned from being in a ward or serving on a mission or all the other places where we're stretched in the church to get along with people who are different than us. If we take those lessons that we've learned in the war and then bring them into our public life, bring them into the school board, bring them into the city council, bring them into the halls of Congress, that may be too much to ask for right now, but at a local level, at least to do that. And there are examples of that happening, of Latter-day Saints taking these principles and bringing them into the public sphere. Yeah, President Nelson recently, he was telling us as women in the church, get into your communities and make a difference, not just at home, but get in your communities and start making a difference. I live in a place called Loudoun County, Virginia. It's about an hour outside of Washington, D.C., and it has been ground zero in the culture wars over school boards. Lots of controversy yelling and screaming at school board meetings, threats of violence, police coming. I mean, it's just really been awful. And in the midst of that, a Latter-day Saint woman, her name's Melanie Tagg. She was our stake Relief Society president. She is no longer. But she and another member of the church, fellow named Chris Stevenson, decided that they were going to try and do something about bridging this divide. This has been written up elsewhere in the public square, uh, the online magazine, Deseret News has done a profile of them, but they made great steps in helping folks on either side of very contentious issues, LGBTQ issues in the school, transgender issues in the school. These are really contentious issues. And yet they were able to bring people from both sides of that debate together and to reach consensus, not compromise, but consensus on a number of issues. Now, there were still some issues that they weren't going to compromise on, and that's going to happen. But they were able to bring together these warring factions and to reach consensus. And you know the way they did it? They got these groups together, and before discussing any of these contentious issues, they got to know one another. And they just had discussions about their family, their interests. They got to know one another. So when they moved to discussing the issues, they were now talking to people who they knew and in some senses had befriended. It was hard work. It took time, but it's a model. And neither Sister Tag nor Brother Stevenson 
have any special training in this area. They're just members of the church who've been to ward councils and, and, and know how <laughs> to, to talk to people who view things. I think we have a great opportunity to be, as President Nelson tells us, to be, urges to be agents of reconciliation in this divide and not to be the yellers and screamers and the conflict entrepreneurs, but to be agents of reconciliation. I think we are uniquely qualified to do that. And now we have the president of church calling us to do that. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. It's interesting too. I think we've had some training in the church, not even realizing we've had this kind of training. We have, like you said, we have to work with people and callings that we might not have chosen that have been called to work with us. And you have to figure out how to work together for the better good, to have a great activity or a great experience for the youth or to do ministering assignments for Relief Society and make sure everyone can get along. You know, I mean, we are constantly doing that in our church culture. That's a really good point. Exactly. Now we can take that skill set we've developed and execute it out in the communities. I love that. That's the vision. But it's hard work, right? It's hard yeah. work. Yeah, it's interesting. My niece, Stephanie Hatch Leishman, she's in Northern California and someone heard her speak in church and they said, will you please run for school board? I've been praying for somebody and you spoke and I know you're the person who's supposed to do it. She doesn't have kids, so she can have the time to do it. And she ran and won. And now she's on the school board. And we had a woman in our ward here in San Clemente who ran for school board and won. And she knows how to work with all these extreme situations and try to work everybody together so they can come to a common good. She's really good at that. Yeah. One of the things that Sister Tag and Brother Stevenson learned, and, and others have said this as well, they had a rule when these groups would meet, these warring factions would, would meet. And you probably heard this elsewhere, but this is another good how-to one is that when you're in a discussion with someone, you can't speak your view until you've explained to the other person, to their satisfaction, their view. In other words, the other person says, you know, I'm for A for the following reasons. And then before you can say, well, I'm not for A, you have to say, now let me make sure I understand what you're saying. Are you saying blah, blah, blah? And then when the other person says, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Only when you've done that, are you then allowed to give your point of view? And that's a great exercise. Social scientists have discovered that if your goal is to persuade someone of your view, the least effective way of doing that is just to hammer them with your view and to point out the shortcomings of their view. That's the least effective way. People just clam up and don't listen. The most effective way is to listen to the other person, just to listen and to make certain you fully understand what they're saying. And apparently, and this isn't surprising, I think we've all experienced this, when you're sitting down with someone and you know they're really listening to you, that creates a different sort of dynamic that sometimes, many times, opens up the possibility of people changing their mind. But what has to come first is you have to listen yeah. to the other person. Yeah, that mutual respect, right? If someone's listening to you, interpreting, saying back to you what you're hearing, you feel heard and seen, and then you're going to be a little more respectful to them and their viewpoints, and then you can come to a compromise. Absolutely. But see, the thing is, all of this requires personal contact, small group dynamics. Like none of this can take place over social media, right? Like the Twitter is like the worst <laughs> possible place to try and understand someone. So don't try it on social media. This has to happen with real people in your home, 
in their home. It's all small group dynamics, I'm afraid. Interpersonal interaction is critical. It is critical. It's a totally different feeling when someone's in front of you, you're looking in their eyes, you're watching their body language, you're together. I mean, there is no substitute for that. So Absolutely. I'd like to wrap up. I love what we've talked about, about unity today. Is there anything else that you would like to close out with? No, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. It's good to talk to you. And I'm so pleased that you're doing what you're doing on this podcast. I guess the last thing that I would say, and maybe I'm just repeating myself here, but I think the present polarization in America and I guess elsewhere, but I know America best, as dreadful and as awful as it is, it actually presents Latter-day Saints with a unique opportunity. But to take advantage of that opportunity, we can't fall into one of the camps of the divisive sides, right? We have to break free from that. Um, and when I was a student at BYU, President Kimball gave a talk about dress and grooming standards that he said, we need to have a style of our own, a style of our own. I think we need to have a style of our own in politics, in the public sphere. We can't just copy what the world is doing because that's not working too well. We ought to be able to draw upon our unique resources, both our doctrine and our experience and our understanding that the strongest force in the universe is the atonement of Christ, right? And that, that all that we should be doing, all that we do should be helping to bring to pass the power of the atonement of Christ. And that atonement of Christ, it has a vertical aspect. I mean, it draws us closer to our heavenly parents, right? But it also has a horizontal aspect. It draws us closer to other people. And we understand that. And I think our great challenge and great opportunity is to take that understanding of the atonement of Christ and take it outside the chapel, take it into our towns and our counties and in our nation. Beautifully said. I totally agree 100%. Thank you so much for your time and insights today, really. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. Please follow us on the What Now Instagram at podcast what now for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present podcasts positive ratings and written reviews are always appreciated just subscribe to the podcast and scroll down the episodes and you'll see where you can leave a positive rating and written review i invite you to help us create positive change by sharing this episode with family friends and anyone you think it might help just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts we never say goodbye we say what now this has been a What Now podcast production.